I was uh, down uh, south just for a day or two at Santa Clarita with my son, John, who's the spiritual life director uh, at the Master's University, and he runs chapel. So I spoke in chapel on Wednesday, and our roles have changed a little bit because he told me that he'd like me to speak in chapel, and then he told me what to preach on. And uh, so that's a little bit of a change. I'm now taking uh, directions um, from him, and, uh, but we had a great time down there, and I saw some of our students, and just such a wonderful, joyful campus. Those students are so thankful to be back on campus, and it was a joy for me to be there and to be with Johnny. And, uh, but he gave me the, the subject. They're doing a theme for the semester called Life Under the Sun, and it's from the book of Ecclesiastes. And so they're looking at that theme of life under the sun. And Johnny gave me uh, a most interesting uh, pressing question that pertains to life under the sun as it relates specifically to the sovereignty of God. So really what I wanted to do is just take one week from the book of Ephesians. In fact, Josh, we're getting some feedback coming here. What is that? I don't know what that is. I could hear a little humming in the back. I don't know if it's just the drum bouncing back, but um, they're doing life under the sun. And so he gave me the sovereignty of God. Now when I, and and so I just want to be able to speak that message that I worked on this week there. We had James and McKenna's wedding, and then I thought, let me just take a week out and bring this message to you. Maybe you understand the term vaguely, of the sovereignty of God. Or maybe you've gone through something tragic and someone told you that God is sovereign. But the question that I want to ask you this morning is this. What does it actually mean? And is God truly sovereign? Is he sovereign? I mean, you're left wondering just what happened in that relationship that I just find myself in or that I've exited, what crisis that I've just went through, in what way is he sovereign? You may even be asking the question, why is all of this happening now? What is God doing in our world in 2020? I would say this to you, Grace Church of the Valley, the fundamental truth of the scripture and of the character of God is that our sovereign God is orchestrating all events, every event, every season, even events out of your control to his purposeful designed end. Okay? And that's the message of Ecclesiastes. And far from God's sovereignty producing fatalism, it is actually designed to lead to your joy in life under the sun. Now, I'm going to explain why it leads to joy, because some of you have had big issues happen to you. And I want you to know, as your shepherd, I'm not, I'm not unthoughtful of that. Some of you have been tried greatly. Some of you have been blessed. Some of you have went through difficult times. And how is it that you're to look at today 
and your life under that window, if you will. In chapter 3, so I want you to take your Bible, open it to chapter 3. Solomon, who's known as the preacher, explains why our lack of control over time and over seasons is the very thing that can produce this kind of joy. And the question that I'm going to pose to you that you can write down at the top is how do you trust and respond to a God who is sovereign? And I want to show you this here, okay? And the text in chapter 3, I'll be looking at verses 1 through 15, is really a masterpiece of what we call wisdom poetry. We're going to get to a piece of poetry in the scripture. I think you might be familiar with this in the wrong way. There was a music group called The Birds who, who wrote a song, sang a song, and you probably know the song, Turn, I won't sing it for you, Turn and Turn and Turn Again. They wrote the song in 1965. They encapsulated the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, but they were obviously butchered from the context, and it took to mean something different in the way they sang it, that there's a season for every event. Follow the text with me in Ecclesiastes 3.1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to... Cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. That which is already has, has been, that which is already to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. There's the text. And all of it is under the banner here of the sovereignty of God. Now what I want to do with our time is I want to define out of the text the sovereignty of God. Then what Solomon's going to do and through the word of God is describe the sovereignty of God in the poem in 2 through 8. Then thirdly, he's going to apply the sovereignty of God to your life 
from verses 9 through 15. It's not too difficult. He's going to define it. He's going to describe it. And he's going to apply it. And I want you to know I'm moving towards 9 through 15 as the focus. So let's look at his sovereignty defined. And you need to stay with me because I'm going to keep the application towards the end in many respects. In chapter 3, 1, look at it. Look at the text. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Just simply put, what this is saying in 3.1 is there is an appointed time for everything under heaven. Now what's interesting is you see that at the end of verse 1, under heaven is up until that time in many places in chapters 1 and 2, he's talking about life under the sun. But there's a clue here in 3.1 that as he looks at his sovereignty, it's every matter under heaven. In other words, time, as he addresses that issue under his sovereignty, is under God's control. Time is under heaven, if you will. Then he mentions that word there in 3.1, just so I can show it to you. It's the word season. And the Hebrew term there means appointed time. In other words, as he describes time, he's not just throwing out things haphazard here. He is actually saying that there is a divinely appointed time set by God. In other words, time itself, the scripture teaches, is determined by God. This is not just a sign that would hang uh, as an office management philosophy. There's a time for everything. No, it's much more focused than that. God has appointed a time for everything. In fact, if you want to read on later, hopefully you won't do it now, there's even a time for oppression in chapter 3, in fact, I'll look at it with you, in verse 16 and 17, he says there, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Listen, you might be surprised, but your God is never surprised. You might be surprised about COVID. You may be surprised by an event. But the Bible is clear under his sovereignty that God is never surprised. He has appointed a time for everything. Even injustice in 3, 16 and 7. Even oppression in chapter 4, 1 through 3. In other words, in the midst of it, the scriptures declaring that God rules. That God is reigning on his throne right now. And that time as you know it, and I'm going to try to free you, is beyond your human control. In other words, what the preacher Koheleth in the Hebrew, Solomon, is saying is that life itself is not a game of chance. Life is not a roll of the dice. Life is not merely fate. 
God is in sovereign control over every matter under heaven. This is not human determination, what he's going to list in just a moment. This is not human um, determination or discernment, if you will. No, all appointed times have been orchestrated and set by God. Listen, beloved, this is sovereignty defined. Our eternal, omniscient creator of heaven and earth controls events from outside of time. We are bound by it. In other words, God has purposed the seasons. He's purposed human affairs under his sovereignty. Now, the world in which we live appears to be out of control. It appears to be on a runaway path for destruction, certainly towards socialism. But in the mind... And the plan of God, he has sovereignly determined everything. Everything. Now listen, I'm going to walk you into this poem here in just a second. And I don't want you to spiritualize the poem. That there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. There's a time, some would say spiritually, to be born again. There's a time where we need to die to sin. No, what Solomon's going to express is that all of a person's activities, both the purposeful, and I say this reverently to you, even the problematic fall under God's sovereignty. In other words, Solomon is just in a moment going to paint and describe this poem as normal life. This is what happens. Now you can compare what I just said, Solomon's wisdom, with Henley's infamous poem called Invictus. I think some of you literature people will, of course, understand this. But in that poem, he said, In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeons of uh, chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. And then he went on to say, It matters not how straight the gate How charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the what? The captain of my soul. That's the world's philosophy. That's the world's pride. Solomon opens up and he says, if you want to understand life under heaven or life under the sun, you're going to recognize that he's sovereign. That his Sovereign will, let me define it for you again, is the final cause of all things. He is the king. He rules. He reigns. He is Lord of heaven and the earth. He is the ruler of all things, and he has the right to do all things. Every action, every event that comes upon us can be traced to God's sovereign will as its source. So there's his sovereignty defined. But secondly, he describes that sovereignty in verses 2 through 8. And he cites a poem, okay, this is is poetry, and he cites a poem, it's not hard to understand, of 28 components, but of 14 polar opposites of seasons in life. 
In fact, that's the poem that's been made famous by the Bird's hit song, Turn and Turn and Turn, but again, it's been ripped from its context and it hacks the poem from the very purpose of the author. In other words, all Solomon is declaring through the Word of God is that God's sovereignty extends to the entirety of human life. Now, this list of times, 14 polar opposites, is not exhaustive, okay? It's not the purpose of wisdom literature and poetry. It's actually representative of everything and every matter or seasons. Now, the commentators have tried to find a rationale for Solomon's list, but there really isn't one. That is the way the world is. We're not to understand every reason as why it comes out this way, but it's the way our lives are. We cannot recognize or determine a pattern. Here is the complexity of life, full of joy, full of sorrow, and a time for all these events, all these seasons. But it's clear, beloved, we are not in control. God is. In fact, let me just glance at a few of these with you just to move through it because I don't think they're to be exposited in full weight. You can go off what the meaning of this wisdom literature is to be. But he says in verse 2, he kind of opens the bracket there, a time to to be born and a time to die. He begins, you say, why does he do that? He begins with birth and death. He begins with two events that you have no control over. Not one of you, not one of the seven billion people. In other words, you were born and you will die, Solomon is saying, and you didn't choose either day. You came into the world and you have a birthday and you will die when your days are completed, but you didn't choose either. God rules the days and everything in between. From cradle to the grave, it is outside of your human control. From start to to finish. He opens with that. Look at verse 2. The time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Farmers certainly, as you well know, do plant. And they do rip out, but circumstances dictate what they do and how they adjust over time. But only, as it says in Psalm 65, does God give the increase. Look at verse 3. He says, a time to kill, kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. And here Solomon is not concerned with the ethical questions regarding what dictates a just war. He's just stating that in life under the sun, under heaven, death and war is a reality of life. And I think he could even be getting to the thought here that an attacking army tears down buildings, but after the hostilities cease, they are rebuilt once again. Look at verse 4. He says, a time to weep. He says, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. In other words, I think he's just capturing this and describing this thought here that sorrow and joy are part of life. And without one, the other is unrecognizable, if you will, unrecognizable. There's such a wide range of emotions. 
There's such a wide range of relationships in all of life. And they've all been appointed by God, who is in control of them, for His purposes. And I just want to actually say to you, that's actually really, really, really good news for us even this morning. Look at verse 5. He says, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. It's hard to find the description of what he's meaning here, but I think it's best to see the gathering of stones as preparation for cultivating a field. I think he's referring to the casting away of stones, referring to the ruining of a field, at least in 2 Kings 3.19, we don't know. And then this next verse was added for the coronavirus in verse 5. Look at it. It says there a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Coronavirus, it's in the Bible right there. You can see it this morning. I mean, I just think he's just saying there's so many relational seasons here and issues here, but even this is under God's sovereign control. They are all parts of the seasons appointed times by God. Look at verse 6. There's a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away. There's a time to look. In other words, there's a time to give up the search. It could even include the search for Solomon for wealth and maybe it's loss. He's searching, he's losing. Look at verse 7. There's a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silent, and a time to speak. Interesting language there. I think he's just describing, if you will, the sovereignty of God. Do you remember, beloved, in in Job chapter 2? Job had three friends that came and visited him. Remember, they came because they heard of all the evil that had come upon him. And the Bible says in Job 2 that they came to comfort him. And when it says in the Bible, they saw him from a distance... The Bible says they did not recognize him. The Bible says they raised their voices and wept. And here's maybe the illusion here. They tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for his suffering was very great. So maybe Solomon is just saying in verse 7, there's a time to tear in the loss and grief of a loved one. There's a time to sow, to put it back together. There's a time to keep silence, and they did for seven days and seven nights, and then I think we're well aware when they spoke, they were wrong, weren't they? Sorry comforters are all of you. And so here's, he's just grasping this. Look at verse 8. He said there's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. I, I just think he's closing the list here of opposites by referring to the two basic emotions of life, love and hate. And the most hostile expression of the latter is war, and its opposite is peace. So the list closes as it began with a set of opposites, war and peace, which a person has little control over. I mean, beloved, you could dance at a wedding 
and then mourn the loss of the one that you danced with. There is such a wide and broad range of emotions to cover the complexities of life. There's seeking and losing and building and tearing. And the point of all of this entire Hebraic poem is that God is in control of the seasons and times of life, and you are not. Now, for sure, don't, don't, don't go fatalism on me, for sure, you make real and responsible decisions every day in your life. But in reality, over the sum of all of it, we know that the seasons are out of our hands. I mean, if you're a dude, you could say this this morning. I'm going to plan. You can say it, but it won't work, and I I hope to illustrate this. I'm going to plan for three hours of joy today, and I'm going to dance with some of my friends tonight. And then next week, I'm just going to plan on 15 minutes of sorrow But following that success, I will marry a righteous fox and become a billionaire. Now, you can say that, but you have no control over that. And if you think you're in control, you're grasping the wind. You're grasping after something that God designed you never to hang on to. And now, now what, what am I getting at right here? You may not, even as I speak, be satisfied right now with your life, right now with your marriage, right now with your kids, right now with your work, right now with your physical condition. But there's one factor that's crucial in that. You, and I'm preaching to myself, can't control your life and these events and these seasons. You're not in control of your life. God is. You say, well, why is that? Well, look at the text again in 3.9. And you got to watch this word here. This is going to be key. The second word in, at least in the ESV. What gain? You can underline that word. Has the worker from his toil. In other words, if life is gain and an advantage, you're going to end up frustrated. And he uses that word gain. Look back in your Bible in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 3. And again, that word is used, what does a man, and I'm in 1-3, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. And he's using it there in a negative, obviously. What do you gain in 3.9 and what do you gain in 1.3? The answer is nothing. If your life is about advantage and your life is about material possessions in chapter 2, then you're going to end up like Solomon, vanity of vanity, because what happens after you've worked this hard and you have to give it to another who hasn't worked for it? That's vanity. And when you look at life as gain under the sun, as advantage under the sun, you're going to be frustrated. Look at chapter 2 
In verse 11, Solomon says here in 2.11, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil, its work, that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. Now watch this. And there was nothing, he says, to be gained under the sun. He's using that word gain again. In fact, go back to chapter 3 now. After he says, what gain is the worker from his toil? He said, I seen in verse 310, the busyness or the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Listen, GCV, if you live for gain, if you live for advantage, Solomon's going to say to you, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. So the key question is this, and I haven't answered it yet. If God is sovereign over all of these events, and he is, then how should you respond? And the application is in verses 11 through 15. It's going to answer that question. So we've seen his sovereignty define, his sovereignty described, and now his sovereignty applied. Take your pen out. Look at verse 11. It's stunning. He, God, has made everything, what does it say? Beautiful in its time. It's a great text. Some translation says that he has made everything appropriate in its time. Here is a promise amidst the world that you live in that he's going to make everything beautiful in its time, and it might not be right now. You live in time. God is outside of time. God sees you at the same time he sees Moses, if you can fathom that. And I can, that's another sermon to preach. He sees it all together. And he's the alpha, he's the omega, he's the beginning, he's the end, he's the first, and he's the last. And beloved, here's a promise to encourage you. And I want to encourage you. He's going to make everything beautiful in its time. Let me come back just for a second with you on two key words. Sovereignty and providence. Sovereignty, we spoke of in, in point one. What is it? It is his right to control all things. That's sovereignty. Providence is the means by which he controls all things. There's the difference. Sovereignty is his right. Providence is the means by which he's doing it. All I can tell you is this. He has designed every, I'm going to use it this way, blessing, forget that, every difficulty in your life and is going to make something beautiful out of it in its time. God's providence is this, is that God is active. This is the teaching of Scripture. In all that happens in the world, think, think about what I just said. Think about the world in which you live in 2020. You think it's out of control? Oh, no, no, no. It's not out of control. He's active, okay, in all that happens in the world, 
And he is directing everything to their appointed ends. Go read 3, 16 and 17 and go read chapter 4, 1 through 3. The providence of God is arranging the circumstances of your life for His glory and for our good. And these circumstances can be both blessing but also hardship. Now the text is amazing going forward. Look at it in verse 11. It says he's made everything beautiful in its time also, comma. He has put eternity into man's heart. In other words, he wired you for eternity, verse 11. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What an amazing statement. Let me put it this way. We yearn to be part of eternity And yet we suffer because we're trapped in time. And the point is, you cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. You cannot unlock every mystery that has happened to you. And I say that to some of you as your shepherd. You just want to know why this happened. And listen, that's just an honest question. Why did this event happen? And the amazing thing is he's put eternity into your hearts, but you can't find out, at least in this life sometimes, what he's doing from beginning to end. We're bound by time. But here's the crazy thing. You're wired for eternity. And trying then to gain control of life that gives you, listen to me, an advantage or a gain is foolish. You say, why so? Because God's purposes are outside of your control and you would dial up a life that had no suffering, no death, no cancer, no miscarriages, but he's in control of everything. And you can't control these seasons and praise God, you weren't supposed to. Let me say this to you, because this is going to be a link to what I have not said yet. You must accept that you are mortal and that God is sovereign. And that's okay. You're mortal, trapped in time, but bound for eternity. God is sovereign. And God has set the seasons and the times, and we must confess his sovereignty One writer said, without anxiety. It's really helped me. Now our president has COVID, right? Now the first lady has COVID. And now there's an election coming. And now there's a Supreme Court nomination that for your children and grandchildren is huge. And if you don't grasp what Solomon is giving to us, you'll go nuts. You'll go nuts because we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Listen, beloved. All seasons, all events are part of the eternal, immutable sovereignty of God. I mean, just think about the time we live in. The West is on fire. The East is underwater. We're supposedly looking for a wonder drug vaccine. It's an election year. And the question is, how do I respond? Well, here's... Wisdom, back to 311, he has made everything beautiful in its time. 
You might say, well, Pastor Scott, is this Bobby McFerrin theology? Remember that song? Don't worry, just be what? Happy? No, I'm not saying that. Did you ever see the movie? Just raise your hand. I just want to know if it was only my family. Did you ever see the old movie, the Disney movie? Pollyanna, just raise your hand. Oh, there's few. Pollyanna played the glad game. I would make my seven children watch that if they complained. And I say, you need to play the glad game. You know, look at Pollyanna. She played the glad. It's just, she turns every negative into a positive. No, that's not what Solomon is saying. Listen, here is an exhortation that he made everything beautiful in its time, knowing that he promises to do that. And knowing that Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for our what? Our good. Do you believe that? Because if we, I, I'm not separate from you. Or do you just want gain? I'm preaching to myself. Do you just want advantage? And so when your boss just stabs you in the back and fired you and hired somebody younger who's incompetent and took your bonus and whatever, whatever it is, you know, how do you handle that? How do you, how do you respond to knowing that he's going to make all things beautiful and knowing that he's working all things together for the good to those who, what, love God And to those who are called according to his purpose, it should lead to this. And this is going to sound bizarre to you. How do I deal with that? Because it could just make you anxious. It's like that time where that guy told me he came into my office and he was having a panic attack. And I said, not here, this is many years ago. I said, well, what is giving you a panic attack? He said, you're preaching. And I said, oh, my preaching, uh, tell me more. And, and I realized I was preaching on the book of Daniel, and I'm preaching on the end of the world, and I'm preaching on the Antichrist, and I, re- I was painting how evil the Antichrist was, and the more I'm painting what the scripture says about the end of the world, the more he's getting tied up in a knot, and so he says, Pastor, I'm, my, my head is spinning when I'm in my kitchen, and I have to sit down, I can't even... What, He's getting a panic attack because of the future, right? Because he can't control the future. And he so desperately, mamas, wants to control the future, in this case for his kids. And he didn't want his, his kids to grow up in a world that is painted in the scripture. And so he began to lose all of his joy. He, you know, just I was praying with him. He became anxious over a number of things. You say, well, how do I respond to this? Look, look what Solomon said in verse 12. Amazing. I perceived, he said, or I know that there's nothing better for them, you, than to be, what? Joyful and to do good as long as they live. To be joyful. In other words, in light of the fact that you're not in control, here's the principle. God is Rather than creating anxiety, you should take life not as gain, but as a gift by the Creator so that it produces in my life and in your life joy. And you're to do good as long as they live. In other words, it shouldn't even paralyze you. Why? Because He's sovereign. 
Look back to chapter 2. This is not just here in 3.12. Look at chapter 2 in verse 24. He said there's nothing better. This is where some people don't understand. He flips back and forth, but really he's speaking rationally. 2.24, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw, he said, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? He says, for to the one who pleases him, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. He said, this is vanity and striving after the wind. But he says, before that, there's nothing better, 224, than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Look over at chapter 8, chapter 8 in verse 15, he says the same thing there. I commend, 8.15, what does he say? Joy. You know, I just watched last night, James and McKenna, their friends are here. I just watched the joy of the wedding, of their faces I had a small part in, and I was there at the beginning. It's always fun to watch James as he looks at his bride. wasn't here, but, you know, come down the middle of the aisle. I see her face. I see dad's face. We have the ceremony. We move to the reception. There's so much joy there. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. Solomon is saying in the midst of an uncertain world, God is certain, and in 8.15, look at it, I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be, what? Joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through uh, the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So beloved families, young people, take comfort, respond in joy knowing that God has the time of your life under his sovereign and providential hand. Now, not all people believe what I just said. Not all rabbis believe that in the Jewish community. Not all Christian pastors believe that. Some of you remember a rabbi, a famous rabbi, many years ago. His name was Rabbi Harold Kushner, and he wrote a book. Do you remember that book? When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Kushner said, human tragedy proves. This is what he said, quote, that God is simply not in control of everything. God, Kushner said, can't stop bad things from happening. He is not, he said, sovereign. He went on to say that God is the victim of evil like the rest of us. That's what he said. Years ago, there was a tornado that demolished a Methodist church during the Sunday service in Alabama. 20 people in that Methodist church were tragically killed, including the four-year-old daughter of the pastor, and when a reporter asked the pastor and his wife if their faith was shaken by this incident and by the death of their precious four-year-old daughter, here was their reply on national news that night. Quote, 
Was their face shaken by the incident? Quote, no, not at all. God did not have anything to do with this. It was an accident, a tragedy beyond God's control. That's what they said. Now, certainly, our hearts, my heart, grieve with those parents who were expressing the deep sorrow over the loss of a child. But when you unpack a theology like that, it's a recipe for despair. Listen, beloved, if God's not sovereign over life's tragedies, how can we possibly believe that he is going to make all things work together for our good? If things merely happen by chance or by accident, what assurance do you have that God's purposes will ultimately be fulfilled? Listen, this is not easy for some of you. And I've been praying for you this week. He's so sovereign. Let me just encourage you. He was sovereign over the wickedness done to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. You gathered evil men together, Acts 4, Pontius Pilate, the Roman soldiers, to do, the Bible says in Acts 4, whatever your hand and purpose declared to be done. He's sovereign over this. I mean, what a relief to know that when your world unravels, God's never has. So you got a promise for that one? Yeah, right here. But I also have Isaiah 46, 9. It says there, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no other like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand. And here's the promise, I will accomplish all my purpose or all my good pleasure. Beloved, I just say this to you, that scripture tells us that nothing happens by chance or accident, not even a sparrow falls to the what? The ground apart from the knowledge of your what? Heavenly Father. Listen, I can't explain all the complexities. I don't think Solomon could. But all I know is he's going to take the greatest hurt, the greatest pain that you've ever experienced, and in the promise of God, he's going to make everything beautiful in its time. So let me just say this. Then you say, well, pastor, I've really been hurt by the greatest trials. What do I do just today? Well, let me just encourage you. Life is a gift from God. Life is not to be lived for the purpose of gain. It's to be received as a gift that comes to you from the Creator. Look, look over to your right. Just a few more. And we're almost done here. Ecclesiastes 5. He says there in 5.18, Behold, I have, he goes, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. Now he says here, in all the toil, it's work. I get that. You get that. He says, with which one toils under the sun the few days of life that God has given him, comma, for this is his, what, lot. He's assigned today. You know, I guess I could tell you this. This has really been a blessing to me because as I keep watching Fox News, 
at least on my phone, my wife keeps telling me to turn it off because it's hard to listen, isn't it? It's hard to hear the rebuttals. All I know is we use that phrase, and I don't mean to cheapen it. God's got this. God's got the whole thing. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the first. He's the last. All of his good purpose is going to come to be accomplished. And you know, somehow he's going to take your greatest pain and turn it in and make it beautiful in his time. And I know this. He's promised to work all things together for your good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. Did I finish there? Look at in verse 19. Some of you have been blessed. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power. I like this phrase. To enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This, there's our word, is a gift of God. And this is verse 20 and I I feel this in many ways. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. Listen, I can't explain it all, but I know that he's given you life as a gift today. I just know that uh, if you've had Job-like trials, you understand God's still sovereign over that. He was sovereign over the cross. Look, finish the text with me. It's amazing. In 3, he says in verse 14, he, he said, I perceived that whatever God does endures, what? Forever. In other words, you can't alter God's perfect, immutable providence. Sometimes I feel like, Except it's even more so. That God's plan is like one of those pictures, you know, that somebody shows you and you can't understand the picture and you're looking at the picture and you can't see and it looks like just lines on some backing that it's been drawn on. But as you adjust your eyes or see it from another angle, only then do you make the picture come to focus. And we can do that here and now in some things, but you cannot stand outside or above time as God does, nevertheless, God's sovereign work is beautiful. Listen, everything from birth to death, every emotion, every event fits into God's sovereign plan, even COVID-19, and to encourage you, uh, educators, even Zoom. I've been talking to teachers, and one teacher told me last week, he says, oh, I'm up to midnight every night. You should be sensitive to that, and I should. They used to be able to come home and be home, but now they're working and making adjustments on Zoom and making sure that no one can steal, making sure that when they're really on, they're really on, and they didn't walk away for an hour for the class. It is just hard work, but in all of it, he's in control. He's over shields. He's over masks. He's over a lot more. He's over elections. All governments have been appointed by God, okay? In fact, it's beyond our understanding, but look at verse 14. He said there, after God does endures forever, nothing can be added to it, nor nothing taken from it. Do you see the theme? He's sovereign. God has done it. I love this phrase. So people can what? Fear him. Fear him. In other words, you can't just say, okay, pastor, I got it. He's sovereign. The old song, I think it was by Doris Day, que Sarah, Sarah, whatever's going to be is going to be. So I'm going to go up into my room and I'm going to play Minecraft all day. 
and it doesn't really matter what I do. I'm just going to play, you know, some kind of game or call of duty. No, 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 no. Look what he says in 14. He said, so that people may, what? Fear before him. In other words, you walk humbly before God. You become active. You do good, if you will. The end of the matter, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. At the end of the day, do you remember that? Go to that, Ecclesiastes 12. Let me show you with your eyes. I think you've seen it. In fact, he sums up his whole book, the end of the matter, when all has been heard. Everything I've said, he said, fear God, 12, 13, and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into, what? Judgment. That, to me, that's comforting. Because some of you have had evil perpetrated against you. And he's going to bring every deed into judgment. You say, well, he's going to do that, yes. But it's also in chapter 3. Look back there. And I'm done here. He said, that which is already has been, and I'm in 3.15. That which is to be already has been, and then this one in 15 frightening actually and God seeks what has been what driven away we said what does that mean well it just means this that what you lose in time and space and history God doesn't he's going to make all things right he's going to take all the evil and turn it towards your good he's going to take the things that people forget or go to prison for and he's going to seek out what was driven away. So in the end, he wins. And I just, out of hurt for some of you, he's going to make all things beautiful in its time. He's going to work all things good in its time. You say, but Pastor Scott, if, if, and you can come up and you might even be weeping as I'm talking to you and I would share that pastoral burden with you but I just know that you're sitting and listening to me, and I do not mean to be insincere. Today's a gift. Your husband that you're sitting next to is a gift. Your child is a gift. You say, but this happened last year or five. I know, it's awful. But all I know, it's a gift for today. And what it's helped me then is to enjoy every day as I wake up that it's a day that the Lord has, has given we don't promise to have an easy life. Some of these things are hard, but he's going to make it appropriate in his time. And here, that's how I take it, that whatever's been driven away and buried and what evil people do and what wicked people do and what wicked people do in the dark and what wicked people advise, you know what? God's going to seek it out. And he's going to bring everything before him. That's why it says at the end of verse at the end of the 12, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. I mean, you watch the news today, you don't even know who's telling the truth, who's lying, who's full of lies, who's partially right, who's, who's actually true. It's hard to discern. We're not even sure what truth is today, but I just want you to know God's got the whole thing from the beginning to end. You say, well, Scott, then it's just Bobby McVerrin. No, it isn't. It's a sovereign God who's going to work it all together. 